Good morning, Crossroads family. I'm so sad that I'm coming to you by video today, but it's out of an abundance of caution after I was notified late in the week on Friday that I was a very close contact to one of my immediate family members who tested positive for COVID-19. But I'm so glad that we can be here together. And over the past three weeks, we've been making our way through the book of Psalms in the Bible to gain a fuller picture of who God is and to learn how we can have a relationship with God. We believe here at Crossroads that being with God is essential to living and loving like Jesus. I hope over the past several weeks as we've looked at the book of Psalms together, and maybe especially as you've been reading through the book of Psalms personally, I hope your picture of God is growing. My family and I love to travel. And at the top of our bucket list of places yet to visit here in the United States of America is Northern California and the state of Washington. I hope by the time I die, I get to lay my eyes on the Sequoia National Park with those giant sequoia trees and also those giant redwood trees too. Though I've never seen these in person, I often have used them as an illustration of what it's like to get to know God. While these trees look massive in pictures, I would assume that only when you're standing at the trunk of one, experiencing it personally, that you really truly recognize its size. I believe that getting to know God is like trying to stretch your arms out and give a hug to one of those giant sequoia trees. The harder that you try and stretch your arms, the bigger you realize the tree is. As we read through the Psalms, as well as the entire Bible, our picture of God should increase. And while God is maybe more than we humanly are able to comprehend, we can still know him and have a personal relationship with him. And I hope that's what you're experiencing as we work through the book of Psalms. As we've gone through the book of Psalms so far, we've heard several of the psalmists describe God as sovereign, that he's the source of all things in creation. He's powerful. He has ultimate authority. He's in control and he has no rival. And in addition to being capable, he is caring. We've also heard the psalmist praise God for his faithfulness, his unfailing love and compassion to us, his presence with us as we walk through the ups and downs, the twists and turns of life, and his ever-present help in our times of need. Last week, we discovered that God is gracious and forgiving. He is fully aware of our sinfulness and is filled with compassion to grant us mercy and make peace with us through his sacrificial death of his only son, Jesus. We can approach him in confession and in worship, and we can worship him for his grace. Today, we're going to work through a few of Psalms that together help us understand that God is just. What I love about the Psalms is that there's this way the psalmists speak to their personal experience with who God is, that they're authentic in their uh, de declaration of his trustworthiness and their praise for his character. And they're even real about those unanswered or unsolved questions that they have in their own life. By reading through these songs and prayers, we can discover God's character and consider how to respond to who God is. Multiple psalms declare and praise God for him being just. Psalm 916 says, the Lord is known by his acts of justice. Psalm 11:7 says, the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Psalm 33, 5 says, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. 
Psalm 36, 6 says, your righteousness is like the highest mountain. Your justice is like the deep ocean. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. And then Asaph says in Psalm 50, verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. The psalmists are all praising God because he is just. It's who he is and it's how he does what he does. You might also notice that in these Psalms and in many others, the word justice and righteousness are often found together. And there's a good reason for that. They are related. The Psalms are written in Hebrew, which provides some very rich descriptions and word pictures to express the attributes of God. But not all Hebrew words have a direct English translation. The word we translate just or justice is mishpat, which occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament. It describes the treatment of people in a way that's whole or perfect and right. It does not necessarily mean fair. Just or justice indicates the preservation of life, moral conformity, and it certainly speaks to the punishment of wrongdoing and opposition to sin. Which is why from the same root word, we often translate the word righteous or righteousness, holiness, sincere devotion, conformity to God's character and will. It wouldn't be necessarily exact to replace one word for the other, but it's most helpful to use them together. Both justice and righteousness are both indicative of God's character and they're to be emulated as a response by those who love and worship him. There's a really great video you might want to check out by the Bible Project on justice and righteousness. And you can find a link to it at our website, cccgo.com forward slash info. These characteristics of God are all reflected in his character and his activity all throughout scripture. I'd love for us today to look at Psalm 146. Why don't you turn there with me in your Bible or, or on your device? While there's no credit given to the specific psalmist who writes Psalm 146, it's one of five psalms. The final five psalms are all grouped together in what's called the Hallelujah Psalms. They all begin with the word Hallelujah, which is translated praise the Lord. It's a a command to praise the Lord for who he is and for what he does. It also is followed by a declaration of why we should praise God. Let's look together at Psalm 146, beginning in verses one and two. The psalmist writes, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. The opening command to praise the Lord is plural, meaning everyone should join in in praising God. And then the psalmist does something unique. He speaks to himself. He speaks for himself. When I was in college, I took a college algebra uh, class and, and our professor said often as we were working algebraic equations, like, so you say to yourself, self, and then he would give some example of what to do. I think in this moment, the psalmist is saying to himself, self, praise the Lord. He says, I will praise the Lord. It's, it's not a statement of what he will do in the future, but, uh, but instead a commitment to doing so right now. The psalmist declares that he will praise God as long as he lives, as long as he has breath with his entire life. And then next, the psalmist offers a very strong warning of a danger of what might take us away from worshiping and trusting God alone. 
Look at verses three and four. The psalmist says, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing. The psalmist is warning anyone from trusting in anyone else other than God. And he mentions princes, but the word used there could actually indicate the influential, people of wealth or power, or anyone that you might want favor from. The psalmist notes their limitation and their mortality. In the ancient world, nobility, people like kings and queens, prince or princesses, they were not steady or stable. At any time, a king could be defeated and overthrown. And if you put your trust in that one person, in the aristocracy, at any one point, you might find yourself on the outside looking in. This might be a good warning for us not to think that our source of help comes from the Oval Office, regardless of who's sitting there or for what party they might be from. It's easy to put our trust and hope in people because we can see and touch them. They are um, tangible, and it seems that they are able to provide help in tangible ways immediately. However, they are not only susceptible to being undone, but they're also limited because they're human, they're mortal. They, anyone should not be the source of our confidence and security because everyone will disappoint eventually. The psalmist gives us that warning and then he shares a parable providing a strong contrast and offering the best solution. Look what he says in verse five. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. And he remains faithful forever. The psalmist states that there is a state of blessedness. It's much more than just being happy or even joyful. We should think of being whole or thriving or flourishing when we think about being blessed. That state comes to those who put their trust in the God of Jacob. And then the psalmist rattles off quite a resume of God who is worthy of our worship, but also our trust. He says, God is the covenant God. He's the God of Jacob. Many times you hear God referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our family's reading through the Bible together since the beginning of this year. And one of the things that's been amazing to me to watch is God making promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then to keep those promises. It's really just helped my faith be strengthened in the God who is worthy of worship and trust. The psalmist says that God is the Lord. He is God, which speaks to his sovereignty once again, that he's unrivaled. He has ultimate authority and he's steady, he's stable, he's trustworthy. The psalmist says that this God is the maker of heaven and earth. As creator and source of all things, he has power and authority. He also has creativity to make all the world that we know. It says finally that God is faithful. The psalmist is giving personal testimony to why he is praising the Lord because he's experienced his power, his compassion, his trustworthiness, his care. It's the way that many of us have taken time to write the ways that we see God showing up in our life. And we posted those post-it notes outside of the worship center close to the atrium. We're worshiping God because he is faithful. Unlike the princes referred to in verse three and four, God has the power to meet our needs. He wants to bless us. He has promised to meet our every need and he is holy and pure and trustworthy. He's not corrupt. 
His plans and purposes will not be expiring or, or changing at the hands of a, of a successor. He's eternal. And he alone is worthy of our worship and our trust. Listen to what the psalmist says next. Psalm 146, verses 7 through 9. The psalmist says, He, meaning God, upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Most other translations in verse five say this, he executes justice. Other translation says he brings, he gives, he secures justice. This is consistent with many other revelations of the character of God throughout the Bible. He is just. Moses was someone who had a very close personal relationship with God. And he had the responsibility to not only reveal God's character to the people of God, but also to mediate a covenant between God and his people. And that came through the law, the the Ten Commandments. Moses knew God personally and spoke of God's character and activity, who he is and, and how he does what he does. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy verse 10. It says, the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and make your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God. Did you see those same attributes that Moses cited about God that we also found in the words of the psalmist? It's who God is. It's what he does. It's consistent what's true about him. He is just. But I also hope you notice a consistent group of people listed. They're the oppressed. They're the hungry, the blind, the imprisoned. The foreigner, some translations use the word alien, not to refer to some extraterrestrial, but to a non-resident, to somebody who would be considered an outcast. Scripture draws a very clear picture of God with enormous power, who especially loves to use his power on behalf of others, some of the weakest, most vulnerable members of society. That has been consistent and true about God's character, as well as his activity throughout all time. And it was instituted as an expectation of those who love, worship, and serve God. For example, in Leviticus 19, the Old Testament law required landowners to leave the edges of their fields unharvested so that the poor could glean from those fields and find food for their survival. The prophets emphasized a concern for the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. And God, speaking through the promise, prophets condemned mistreatment of widows and orphans. If you were with us uh, on Christmas Eve, we looked at a prophecy from Isaiah 61 about the coming Messiah who would preach the good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captive, give sight to the blind, release the prisoner, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That promised Messiah was born as Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, our Lord. Fully human, but also fully God, reflecting all the character and activity 
of God. And what did Jesus do while he was here on earth? Well, he opened the eyes of the blind. He released the oppressed. He welcomed the outcast. He blessed the fatherless and the orphan. He raised the dead. We read all throughout the gospels that these eyewitness accounts give proof that Jesus was consistent in his character, much like God himself. God has always demonstrated and declared a heart for and the protection of those who were outside the social power structures and, the, and were vulnerable to injustice because they're often the ones who cannot provide, speak, or even defend themselves. God says, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is at the heart of everything about me. His justice is, is not a disposition. It's a description of his character and his activity. He's acting in real time, in real space for real people with real needs. That has always been true about God, and it still is. And there are still injustices in the world around us today. One of our partners here in the Evansville area for Evansville released uh, what they call the State of E report, just describing some of the social injustices that we find right here in our own backyard. And some of the observations they made about Southern Indiana, about the tri-state area that we should take to heart are things like this. They, they mentioned stable housing, which means housing that is available, safe and affordable. And they noted that someone making minimum wage in our community would have to work 82 hours every week just to afford a two-bedroom apartment. That equates to two full-time jobs for one person. They noted that 21% of third graders in the Evansville Vanderbilt School Corporation failed the I-read exam, which indicates that they'll be 21% less likely to graduate high school. They noted that between the years 2008 and 2017, the number of neglectful child abuse cases increased by 43%. Right here, living in Evansville, within the city limits, 40% of those families live paycheck to paycheck, and 10% of those families make less than $10,000 a year. The State of E report also noted that we still live in a world where people are judged, oppressed, even victimized because of the color of their skin, whether that be black, brown, or yellow. You know, this past Monday, we as a country celebrated and honored the work and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who gave his life challenging the social structures of our country, addressing and standing against racial injustices of his time, and also to declare that God is just. This last week, I read his letter from a Birmingham jail. I think it's the pinnacle of his thoughts on injustice. I think it's even more powerful and poignant than his I have a dream speech. And you know what? It's way more convicting. Because in that letter, Martin Luther King Jr. is actually addressing that letter to eight white church leaders from the state of Alabama who are actually responsible for him being imprisoned at the same time. They were some of his loudest objectors. Martin Luther King wasn't preaching a gospel, anything other than what reflects the true heart and nature of almighty God that falls in line with his activity all throughout history. And this gospel still stands in need of those 
of those who say they love God, to pick up the mantle and to live and love like Jesus did, facing and working against the injustices of our time, even right here in 2022. Could it be that the protection of unborn babies, the crisis of undocumented foreigners, or the lack of available health care for all are not political issues, but actually issues that matter greatly to the heart of God, and also issues that he expects those who say that they love him to do something about them? When we learn the heart of God, we must reflect his heart in the way that we live and in the way that we love. Those of us who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord are, and are part of the church, his bride, should be known for our care for those who need help. People like the hungry, hurting, an outcast, the lonely, the oppressed, the victimized, even the guilty. Tim Keller writes this. When people see us sharing our faith, when they see us doing evangelism, the world only sees us recruiting people. But when they see us pouring ourselves out for the poor, for the oppressed, for anyone who's facing injustice, they get a glimpse of the glory of God. They, they seem, Keller writes that they all have these filters on that they can't see truly or rightly. But it's almost like when we care for others, the poor, we, we show them the character of God in a way that blasts through all these filters. The prophet Micah had some condemnation that he brought to the people of God for their breaking of the covenant with God as well as their disobedience. He gave them some pretty strong and straightforward words when he said in Micah 6, 8, the Lord has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does he require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I love how Eugene Peterson translates those same words when he says, He's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what's fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love and don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. Because we worship a God who's just, we must respond by reflecting his heart of justice. We must notice those around us who are suffering, the hungry, the hurting, the orphan, the widow, the outcast, and then we must act justly. How might we do that in some practical ways? Well, we can simply serve with our community partners to help address the injustices in our own backyard. Our local partners are providing needs met, those tangible needs around us. They are empowering people. They are demonstrating the love of Jesus in very tangible ways. Partners like Community One, partners like the Potter's Wheel, partners like the Evansville Rescue Mission or the Evansville Life Center. You can learn more about those local partners on our website, but just don't let it be up here. Let it come down here. Let it be expressed in your hands and your feet as you act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God as he leads you into those places within our own community. We can take a vested interest in the needs of the elderly who are living in our neighborhood or maybe are within our own family. We can notice that fellow employee who seems to be the outcast. Maybe he's the brunt of every joke. He's not uh, invited to those group lunches. You can get to know their name. You can befriend them. You can invite them to lunch. Maybe if you're a student, you can sit with that student who has no one else to sit with them in the cafeteria. 
We might all invest in the lives of an individual with special needs. We can serve at a local crisis pregnancy. There's a brand new one opening here in our community just this month called Trotter's House. Just quit avoiding or looking down or or being suspicious of every person who looks different than you. We can start listening and learning instead of posting or reposting hateful things on social media. Psalm 146 states clearly that the Lord loves the righteous and he frustrates the way of the wicked. The blessed are those who are pursuing justice and living righteously. And those who are wicked or evil are not doing that. And it says that the Lord is turned against them. He turns their way upside down. That's what it means to frustrate the way of the wicked. It led me to think about what Jesus said in Matthew 25. He's giving a picture of what will happen on the day of judgment. You might have heard the parable that Jesus uses of how it all will go down. It's a shepherding image that he gives. There's a shepherd that's separating sheep from goats of its flock. And Jesus says that one group is going to go to heaven and one group is going to go to hell. He's very, very blunt. What Jesus contrasts between the two is how they respond to those who are hungry and thirsty. How how they respond to those who are strangers or those who are naked or sick or imprisoned. The righteous are those who sought and worked for justice. Those who fed the hungry, those who gave a drink to the thirsty, who welcomed the stranger into their home, who clothed the naked, who cared for the sick, who visited those in prison. Do I really need to make the practical application to that? Jesus said, when you do these things for the least of these, you've done them to me. I wonder if he's also saying, you did them like me. You did them with me. When we gain a clear picture of God who is just, what's important to him, how he acts and how he's working, we should respond in worship, in awe and reverence of a God who is sovereign, faithful, gracious, and just. And the highest form of worship I've always believed is emulation or imitation. God is just. We can trust him to care for us, to work for our good, to stand in our defense, to provide for our needs, to right the wrongs of our life and also in our world. He's active and he is at work. But we must also join him in seeking and working for justice. Tim Keller says, you have to be so moved by the God of justice that it turns you into a person of justice. I think the biggest picture of God being just is how he dealt with our sin and its consequences. God is so holy, righteous, and just that he couldn't let our sin go unnoticed or unpunished. So instead of ignoring it, or instead of condemning us, he decided to place the punishment that we deserved on Jesus, his only son. He sent him to earth for this purpose. As we discovered last week, those offensive ways in our hearts and lives, our rebellion, our guilt, our sin, God removed from us as far as the east is from the west because his love for us is as high as the heavens above. When Jesus read those words in Isaiah 61 in Nazareth that day, he stopped actually before reading the final part of verse two from Isaiah 61. Jesus says, I've come to proclaim God's favor, but also 
the day of vengeance of our God. Both are sides of God's justice, comforting those who've experienced injustice and bringing justice to the perpetrator, those guilty, those who are sinful. When Jesus came the first time, he came to save the world, not to condemn the world. When Jesus comes back the second time, it will be to bring judgment. He will set all things right in the end. We can trust his justice to right all the wrongs. The psalmist praised God for this. Jesus didn't come the first time to earth to bring the vengeance of God, but to bear the vengeance of God. He didn't just stand with us or stand by us. He stood in our place. When Jesus went to the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be a sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you and I look at the cross, we see the justice that is so incredibly important to God because that's his character, that's how he behaves. He couldn't set our sin aside, and he didn't. Jesus died on the cross to satisfy the demands of justice. The cross not only tells us that justice is important to God, but also that our sin has been dealt with once for all, and we are justified by God's grace. This is what Paul tells the Romans. He says, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's a picture, my friend, of what it looks like for us to worship and serve and emulate a God who is just. Right now, we're going to worship a God who is just and who has also justified us by celebrating the Lord's Supper. When you came in today, you should have picked up some bread and juice in those little packets. And this bread, this cracker reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. And the, and the juice reminds us of his blood that was shed for us, all to satisfy the demands of justice and to justify you and I so that we could know God and have a personal relationship with him. We're gonna sing right now. And then just a few moments, we're gonna partake of the Lord's Supper together. I hope you'll join us.